Section 49 of Deerbrook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Deerbrook by Harriet Martineau. Section 49. Lightsome Days, Part 2. Her husband could not speak for astonishment and delight. You remember that evening in Verdon Woods, Edward? The evening before we were married? Remember it? Well, how infinitely happier are we now than then? Oh, that fear, that mistrust of myself. You reproved me for my fear and mistrust then. And I, I must beg leave to remind you of what you then said. It is not often that I can have the honour of preaching to you, my dear husband, as it is rather difficult to find an occasion. But now I have caught you tripping. What is there for you to be uneasy about now, that can at all be compared with what I troubled myself about then? Since that time I have caused you much misery, I know, misery which I partly foresaw I should cause you. But that is over, I trust. It is over at least for the time that we are poor and persecuted. I dare not and do not wish for anything otherwise than as we have it flow. Persecution seems to have made us wiser, and poverty happier. And how, if only Margaret were altogether as we would see her, how could we be better than we are? You are right, my dear wife. These few tender words, and her husband's brightened looks, sufficed. Hester had no cares. She forgot even the fever in seeing Edward look as gay as usual again, and in feeling that she was everything to that feeling, that conviction, for which she had sighed in vain for long after her marriage. She had then fancied that his profession, his family, his own thoughts, were as important to him as herself. She now knew that she was supreme, and this was supreme satisfaction. When Margaret sprang up to her new labours in the chill dusk of the next morning, she flattered herself that she was the first awake. But it was not so. When she went down, busy shovelling the snow away, and making a clear path from the kitchen door to the coal-house. He declared it delightfully warm work. By the time he had brought coals in enough for the day, and wanted more employment of the same sort, he went round to the front of the house, and cleared the steps and pavement there, caring nothing for the fact that two or three neighbours gazed from their front doors, and that some children stood blowing upon their fingers, and stamping with their feet, enduring the cold for the sake of seeing the gentleman clearing his own steps. "'What would the greys say?' asked Margaret, laughing, as, duster in hand, she looked from the open window, and spoke to her brother outside. "'I'm sure they ought to say I've done my work well.' "'That is just what Hester is observing within here. You are almost ready for breakfast, are you not? She is setting the table. Quite ready. What warm work this is!' Really, I do not believe there is such a bit of pavement in all Deerbrook as this of ours. Come, come into breakfast. You have admired your work quite enough for this morning. The three who sat down to breakfast were as reasonable and philosophical as most people, but even they were taken by surprise with the sweetness of comforts provided by their own immediate toil. There was something in the novelty, perhaps, but hope threw on the fire with remarkable energy the coals he had himself brought in from the coal-house, and ate with great relish 
the toast toasted by his wife's own hands. Margaret, too, looked round the room more than once, with a new sort of pride in there being not a particle of dust on table, chair, or book. It was scarcely possible to persuade Edward that there was nothing more for him to do about the house till the next morning, that the errand boy would come in an hour and clean the shoes, and that the only assistance the master of the house could render would be to take charge of the baby for a quarter of an hour, while Hester helped her sister to make the beds. After breakfast, when Hester was dressing her infant, and Margaret washing up the teacups and saucers, the postman's knock was heard. Margaret went to the door, and paid for the letter from the emergency purse, as they called the little sum of money they had put aside for unforeseen expenses. The letter was for Edward, and so brief that it must be on business. It was on business. It was from the lawyer of Mr. Hope's aged grandfather, and it told that the old gentleman had at last sunk rather suddenly under his many infirmities. Mr. Hope was invited to go, not to the funeral, for it must be over before he could arrive, but to see the will in which he had a large beneficial interest, the property being divided between himself and his brother, subject to legacies of one hundred pounds to each of his sisters, and a few smaller bequests to the servants. "'This is as you always feared,' said Hester, to her husband, observing the expression of concern on his face on reading the letter. "'Indeed, I always feared it would be so,' he replied. "'I did what I could to prevent this act of posthumous injustice, "'and I am grieved that I failed, for nothing can repair it. "'My sisters will have their money, the same in amount, "'but how different in value. "'They will receive it as a gift from their brothers, "'instead of as their due from their grandfather. "'I am very sorry that his last act was of this character.' "'Will you go? Must you go?' "'No, I shall not go, at least not at present. "'The funeral would be over, you see, before I could get there, "'and I doubt not the rest of the business "'may be managed quietly and easily by letter. "'I have no inclination to travel just now, "'and no money to do it with, "'and strong reasons of another kind for staying at home. "'No, I shall not go. "'I am very glad.' Now the first duty is to write to Emily and Anne, I suppose, and to Frank. Not to Frank just yet. He knows what I meant to do, in case of my grandfather recurring to this disposition of his property. And further than this, I must not influence Frank. He must be left entirely free to do as he thinks proper, and I shall not communicate with him till he has had ample time to decide on his course. I shall write to Emily and Anne to-day. I am sorry for them. So am I. What a pity it is when the aged, whom one would wish to honour after they have gone to their graves, impair one's respect by an unjust arrangement of their affairs. How easily might my grandfather have satisfied us all, and secured our due reverence at the last, by merely being just. Now, after admitting what was just, he has gone back into his prejudices, and placed us all in a painful position, from which it will be difficult to every one of us to regard his memory as we would wish. He little thought you would look upon his rich legacy in this way, said Margaret, smiling. 
I gave him warning that I should. It was impossible to refuse it more peremptorily than I did. That must be your satisfaction now, love. You have done everything that was right, so we will not discompose ourselves, because another has done a wrong which you can partly repair. My dear wife, what a comfort you give, what a blessing it is, that you think and feel and will act with me, making my duty easy instead of difficult. I was going to ask, asked Margaret, whether you have no misgiving, no doubt whatever, that you are right in refusing all this money. Not the slightest doubt, Margaret. The case is not in any degree altered by my change of fortune. The facts remain that my sisters have received nothing yet from the property, while I have had my professional education out of it. That my profession does not at present supply us with bread does not affect the question at all, nor can you think it does, I am sure. But, Hester, my love, what think you of our prospect of a hundred pounds? A hundred pounds? Yes, that is the sum set down for me when the honest will was made. And that sum I shall, of course, retain. Oh, delightful! What a quantity of comfort we may get out of a hundred pounds! How rich we shall be! She is thinking already, said Margaret, what sort of a pretty cloak baby is to have for the summer. And Margaret must have something out of it, must she not, love? asked Hester. We will all enjoy it, with many thanks to my poor grandfather. Surely this hundred pounds will set us on through the year. That will be very pleasant, really, observed Margaret, to be sure of bread for all the rest of the year. Oh, the value of a hundred pounds to some people! What a pity that Morris did not stay with us one other day, exclaimed Hester. And yet, perhaps not so. It might have perplexed her mind about leaving us, and induced her to give up her new place. And there is nothing in a chance hundred pounds to justify that. It is better as it is. All things are very well as they are, said Hope, as long as we think so. Now, I am going to call on Walcott. Good-bye. Stop, stop one moment. Stay and see what I have found, cried his wife, in a tone of glee. Look, feel, tell me, is this not our boy's first tooth? It is, it certainly is. I give you joy, my little fellow. Worth all the hundreds of pounds in the world, observed Margaret coming in her turn to see and feel the little pearly edge, whose value its owner was far from appreciating, while worried that the inquisition which was made into the mysteries into his mouth. Now it is a pity that Morris is not here, all exclaimed. We must write to her. Perhaps we might have found it yesterday, if we had any idea it might come so soon. No, Hester was quite positive there was no tooth to be seen or felt last night, well, we must write to Morris. You must leave me a corner, said Hope. We must all try our skill in describing a first tooth. I will consider my part as I walk. Bite my finger once more before I go, my boy. The sisters busied themselves in putting the parlour in order, for the reception of any visitors who might chance to call, though the streets were so deep in snow as to render the chance a remote one. Margaret believed that, when the time should come, she might set the potatoes over the parlour fire to boil, and thus, without detection, save the lighting another fire. But before she had taken off her apron, while she was in the act of sweeping up the hearth, there was a loud knock, 
which she recognised as proceeding from the hand of a grey. The family resemblance extended to their knocks at the door. As if no snow had fallen, Mrs. Grey and Sophia entered. "'You are surprised to see us, my dears, I have no doubt. But I could not be satisfied without knowing what Mr. Hope thinks of this epidemic, this terrible fever, which everyone is speaking about so frightfully.' "'Why, what can he think?' "'I mean, my dear, does he suppose that it will come here? "'Are we likely to have it?' "'He tells us, what I suppose you hear from Mr. Gray, "'that the fever seems to be spreading everywhere, "'and is just now very destructive at Buckley. "'Does not Mr. Gray tell you so?' "'No, indeed. "'There is no learning anything from Mr. Gray "'that he does not like to tell. "'Sophia, I think we must take in a newspaper again.' that we may stand a chance of knowing something. Sophia agreed. Sophia and I found that we really had no time to read the newspaper. There it lay, and nobody touched it, for Mr. Gray reads the news in the office always. I told Mr. Gray that it was paying so much a week, but no good to anybody, and I begged he would countermand the paper. But we must take it in again, really, to know how this fever goes on. Does Mr. Hope think, my dears, as many people are saying here this morning, that it is a sort of plague. "'Oh, mamma! exclaimed Sophia, "'how can you say anything so dreadful?' "'I have not heard my husband speak of it so,' said Hester. "'He thinks it is a very serious affair, "'happening as it does in the midst of a scarcity, "'when the poor are already depressed and sickly. "'Ah, that is always the way, Mr. Gray tells me. "'After a scarcity comes the fever,' he says.' The poor are much to be pitied indeed, but what should those who do who are not poor? Have you heard Mr. Hope say? He thinks they should help their poor neighbours to the very utmost. Oh, yes, of course, but what I mean is, what precautions would be advised? We will ask him. I have not heard him speak particularly of this on the present occasion. Then he has not established any regulations in his own family? No. But I know his opinion on such cases is in general to be that the safest way is to go on as usual, taking rational care of health, and avoiding all unnecessary terror. This common way of living, and a particularly diligent care of those who want the good offices are the rich, are what he would recommend. I believe at this time, but when he comes in we will ask him. You had better stay until he returns. He may bring some news. Meantime, I am sorry my baby is asleep. I should like to show you his first tooth. His first tooth, indeed! He is a forward little fellow. But, Hester, do you happen to have heard your husband say what sort of fumigation he would recommend in case of such a fever as this showing itself in the house? Indeed, I have not heard him speak of fumigations at all. Have you, Margaret? I should just like to know, for Mrs. Jones told me of a very good one, and Mrs. Howell thinks ill of it. Mrs. Jones recommended me to pour some sulphuric acid upon salt, common salt, in a saucer. But Mrs. Howell says there is nothing half so good as hot vinegar. Somebody has come and put up a stall, said Sophia, where he sells fumigating powders and some pills, which he says are an infallible remedy against the fever. Preventative, my dear. "'Well, Mamma, tis just the same thing. "'Does Mr. Hope know anything of the people who have set up that stall?' "'Hester thought she might venture to answer that question "'without waiting for her husband's return. "'She laughed as she said that 
medical men avoided acquaintance with quacks. Does Mr. Hope think that medical men are in any particular danger? asked Sophia bashfully, but with great anxiety. I think that they must be, going among so many people who are ill. If there is a whole family in the fever in a cottage at Crossley End, as Mrs. Howell says there is, how very dangerous it must be to attend them. Sophia was checked by a wink from her mother, and then first remembered that she was speaking to a surgeon's wife. She tried to explain away what she had said, but there was no need. Hester calmly remarked that it was the duty of many to expose themselves at such time in an equal degree with the medical men, and that she believed that few were more secure than those who did so without selfish thoughts and ignorant panic. Sophia believed that every one did not think so. Some of Mr. Walcott's friends had been remonstrating with him about going so much among the poor sick people just at this time, and Mr. Walcott had been consulting her as to whether his duty to his parents did not require that he should have some regard to his own safety. He had not known what to do about going to a house in Turnstile Lane, where some people were ill. A dead silence followed this explanation. Mrs. Gray broke it by asking Margaret if she might speak plainly to her. The common preface to a lecture. As usual, Margaret replied, Oh, certainly. I would only just hint, my dear, that it would be as well if you did not open the door yourself. You cannot think how strangely it looks, and some very unpleasant remarks might be made about it. It is of no consequence such a thing happening when Sophia and I come to your door. I would not have you think we regard it for ourselves in the least, the not being properly shown in by a servant. Oh, not in the least, protested Sophia. But you know it might have been the Levitts. I suppose it would have been just the same if the Levitts had called. It certainly would. It might have been the Levitts, certainly, observed Hester. But I must just explain that it was to oblige me that Margaret went to the door. Then, my dear, I hope you will point out some other way in which Margaret may oblige you, for really you have no idea how oddly it looks for young ladies to answer knocks at the door. It is not proper self-respect, proper regard to appearance. And was it to oblige you that Margaret carried a basket all through Deerbrook on Wednesday, with the small end of a carrot peeping out from under the lid? Fee, my dears, I say fee. It grieves me to find fault with you, but really this is folly. It is really neglecting appearances too far. Mr. Hope did not return in time to see Mrs. Gray. When she could wait no longer, Hester promised to send her husband to solve Mrs. Gray's difficulties. What would she have said, exclaimed Hester, if she had seen my husband's doings of this morning? Ah, what indeed! Actually shoveling snow from his own steps! Oh, I thought you meant giving away a competence. Which act would she have thought the least self-respectful? She would have had a great deal to say on his duty to his family in both cases, but it is all out of kindness that she grieves so much over his enthusiasm and lectures us for our disregard of appearances. If she loved us less, we should hear less of her concern, and it would be told to others behind our backs. So we will not mind it. You do not mind it, Margaret? I rather enjoy it. That is right. Now I wish my husband would come in. 
He has been gone very long, and I want to hear the whole truth about this fever. End of section 49